doesn't that just fill you with excitement and joy that you just want to ditch service and go to Disneyland right now? Not me. Many of you may or may not know this, but I had the opportunity to work at Disneyland when I was a much, much younger man than I am today. Um, and I actually started off working in Adventureland as a cast member, working at Indiana Jones Adventure. And in my time there, I was responsible as a cast member for dispatching Jeeps into the attraction with 12 people loaded into each Jeep every 18 seconds in order to meet our numbers. Which if you figure, that's pretty crazy. That's almost about 2,000, 2,200 people every hour that we're trying to hit as our target of getting in and out of the attraction. So there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress that came with that job. But I got to meet some really cool people and have some great experiences and the Disney thumbs up there. You know, it's so fun. Uh, once I got off probation, I proved myself worthy enough that I could handle the rhythm of Disneyland. I got promoted and moved up and over to Frontierland, where I worked at Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. And when I was at Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, once again, the Disney thumb up, I got to hang out with some cool goats and some people too. Um, but uh, when I was here, we would actually try to fit 45 people into each train. Now, if you've ever been to Thunder Mountain, you think, wait a second, that doesn't seem right. There's only 15 rows. Yes, our goal was to put three people in every row, regardless if they knew each other or not. So our management would tell us, hey, make dreams happen. Like, hey, you're a single girl, you're a guy, let's go. Here's your row, right? We we're kind of the matchmaker, putting people in there. And it was super awkward. Like, oh, and your dad's going to ride with you too. <laughs> have fun. Um, so it was awesome. But we would have to send a train in every 15 seconds into the attraction in order to meet our efficiency and our time frames. And if we were slower than a half of a second, the attraction would break down because the trains are gravity. They move based off of hills and mountains. And so if you don't dispatch every 15 seconds, the trains get too close together and the attraction breaks itself down. So high stress, trying to put 45 people into a train in 15 seconds, check all of their lap bars, make sure it's secure, give them the safety spiels in 15 seconds. Crazy busy, very stressful. Once I proved myself worthy there, I moved over to Main Street, USA, where I got to work on the Disneyland Railroad, uh, one of Walt Disney's favorite attractions, where I got to take daily tours around the rivers of America, making stops in New Orleans Square, Toontown, Tomorrowland, and Main Street, USA, with a slight detour through the Grand Canyon along the way. Um, as you can tell, I've got the Disney spiels down very well. But when I was there, I got to meet some really cool people and ride the rails around the fresh air, even on the hot days, and it was awesome. It was amazing. Well, as I started working these attractions about three years into this, I decided to take my career to the next level, and I moved up as a trainer where I would train new cast members on how to operate these attractions and a couple other ones I haven't mentioned, and eventually a lead where I would supervise these attractions working 18 to 22-hour shifts depending on where I actually landed on the lead pool for that day. Once I was a lead, I actually got nominated for a very special position within the park called Special Events Operations, and they're like the elite Navy SEALs of Disneyland cast members. <laughs> Special event operations, they pretty much get to do anything inside and outside of the park. And so I got to do things like work two red carpet premieres for Pirates of the Caribbean. I got to do grad nights. I got to do the opening of Cars Line in Buena Vista Street. I got to walk around Larry the Cable Guy up there at the top who also has that, hey, look at this guy. He's funny looking. Um, I got to do lots of really cool things while I was there. And this is a really great opportunity because we got to see some amazing things happen. And I got to meet ambassadors from around the world, celebrities from all walks of life. It was awesome. But even though it sounds so awesome, all of this came at a cost to me. You see, when you as the guests enter in the park, all you see inside of Disneyland is the glitz, the glamour that Disney wants you to see. 
They're very good about giving you a perceived image where they'll say, hey, we want you to be transformed into this amazing world that's unlike anything else. So you forget your worries, you forget your troubles, and you just become part of the Disney experience. And that's great for you as the guest, but that's not so great for us as cast members because cast members would very typically see the other side of this. We would see people who would be angry, who would be upset, who would be frustrated, who would be irritated, and who have these unrealistic expectations feeling entitled because of how much they paid to get in the park that they would demand unrealistic things from us as cast members. No, I'm sorry, sir, your son cannot ride Indiana Jones Adventure because they don't meet the height requirement, and it's for their safety I don't let them ride. No, you can't come back in five minutes with their shoes stuffed with paper towels to make them taller. No, you can't come back when we rotate shifts and we're gone and have them wearing your wife's high heels. And high heels at Disneyland, that just doesn't make sense to begin with. I'm sorry, sir, but I cannot let your son ride this ride. And I know it's the thing that they have desired the most ever since they were born. When they came to this earth, that their sole purpose and passion in life was to ride this attraction. By me denying their right to ride, I have negated them to just living a life of a homeless person in a van down by the river where they're going to become a drug addict and not be able to do anything in life because I ruined their hopes and their dreams. But I'm sorry, they still cannot ride. I wish these were made up stories, but these are actual conversations I've had with people while I worked at Disneyland. And typically at that point, this is where it gets violent. I've been pushed, shoved, slapped, kicked, spit on, physically insulted, verbally insulted, mentally insulted, had my intelligence questioned more times than I can count. All because people want it to be a certain way, because they want it to be their way. And now granted, I speak on myself. Now this doesn't necessarily mean this is the experience of every single cast member, but I would gauge that most cast members have gone through this at some point in their life. And now I'm not telling you any trade secrets of Disney because I'm afraid this mouse is going to drop down from the ceiling and dart me in the neck and just, you know, it's like, shh, just drag my body off like seven dwarves come up and drag me off. Um, but the real reason why I tell you this is because there's a lot of things that I experienced and went through that I think kind of help. And as I remember being a cast member, the constant thought of why am I doing this would go through my head. And this constant thought of I wish there was something different that I could do. I wish that I wouldn't have to deal with these kind of guests time and time again for every hour of my shift. Simple answer was to quit and walk away, but I'm not a quitter. I don't like to quit, and so I started thinking outside the box, saying, what can I do to make my experience different at Disneyland? So when I became a lead, I made it one of my goals and one of my missions that to the best of my ability, every single cast member that would be under my supervision during that shift was trained and told if they ever found themselves in a situation that was greater than they could bear that they would try to defuse the situation themselves at first, but if it got too violent, if it got too out of hand, or they just didn't feel right or uncomfortable, to call me, no questions asked, I would drop whatever I'm doing and come and insert myself in that situation. Literally removing the cast member so that they wouldn't have to take the brunt of whatever was happening. And most of the time, it worked well. Because people who are angry typically just want to yell and vent their frustrations to someone they think is in charge. Someone who has a badge that represents the company. Sometimes it didn't work and things would take a terrible turn really quickly. Perfect example, a story. I worked at Indiana Jones Adventure and I was at the very center of the attraction. All the cast members have what's called a ride phone that connects to each position within the attraction. And one of the girls who was dispatching the vehicles, her phone rings, she picks it up and then she looks and calls me over and hands it to me. So I walk over, I grab the phone and I hear on the other line a cast member and the first words out of his mouth were, Matt, I need you immediately. And there was a panic in his voice. And I said, okay, where are you at? He's like, I'm at the, the merge point of the attraction. 
those of you who don't know where the merge is Indiana Jones, it's where the fast pass and the regular peons, I mean the regular guests, they merge together to get into the attraction, right? Typically, this is one of the most violent spots in the attraction because people have been waiting in line for like an hour and 30 minutes to get into the attraction while others are 25 minutes. And there's a lot of like, who gets to go? How many people from what side? And people just, and there's one person in charge of all of it who's usually like the rookie of the entire shift that day, right? It's like, hey, have fun. You're out there for eight hours. Enjoy. Um, But he was really panicked and he called me and says, Matt, I need you to come out here immediately. And part of me inside said, hey, I remember as a lead, one of my jobs is without questions asked just to go and insert myself in the situation. But something in his voice triggered to me that there was something greater at play here. And so I said, what's going on? Just so that way I would know what to prepare for. And he said, and I cannot make this up, Matt, there is a raccoon and an opossum fighting behind me and I don't know what to do. And Disney doesn't train you for these kind of scenarios. You know, they train you on show and courtesy and efficiency and these kind of things, not like animal control, right? And so I said, okay, let's keep safety in mind. My first response is, let's go ahead and stop the line. Don't let anybody go past this vicious death scene going on, right? Go ahead and push the line back to give the animals some space, because who knows if they've got rabies or what's going on, or if like Mickey Mouse is just going to come and tackle them and whatever it may be. So I said, let's push the line back and I'll be on my way out there. So I get out of the station, I call our Holder Culture team, and I go running out there, and man, he wasn't lying. This was some of the most vicious, intense horror film scenarios I've ever seen in my life. There was like raccoon flesh dripping from the wall. There was like a possum fur. There's like bundles of things. There was like a piece of the possum here and over here, and they were just going at it. And some of the sounds coming out of this scenario were things I have never heard and I never want to hear again. It was bad, right? So we pushed the line back and keep in mind, we're at an hour and 45 minute wait at this point. And the line at Indiana Jones is already pretty congested. So we shoved them back even closer to where they're like sardines on this ramp. So close to where people are starting to get like sweat transfer on their clothes of how close they are to the people in front of them. And we hold them here for 15 minutes while we wait for the situation to resolve itself. Well, eventually our team comes and they kind of like cage up the remaining body parts and like clean the blood off the walls. It's, it was bad. And then they take everything away. It's like, have a magical day. And they leave, right? So then we start letting the attraction back in and things seem to be going good. And I stay up there thinking, okay, people are probably going to be upset, but most people saw and heard what was going on. So this shouldn't be an issue. So I stayed up there for a while, thanking people as they would go by, apologizing for their experience, because I'm a lead and that's my job. And one of my cast members calls me on the ride phone and says, Matt, I need you to come to the entrance of the attraction for a really bad guest concern. And I knew this was going to happen. So I make my way down there, and as I'm walking down the ramp, I just see it. There's this cast member, a girl, small, young, maybe like four foot nothing, right? Four foot eight. And there's this towering bodybuilder, towering over her with his shoulders popped up, his fists clenched, yelling down at her like this. And so I walk up and my immediate response is, this is not a good scenario for anybody because everybody's watching this. This is a really bad scene. My job as a lead is to intervene and remove my cast members if they're ever at a point where they feel threatened. So I literally just slide between her and this guy and I kind of shove her to the back and I say, go inside, just like leave, go, right? And this guy then is just towering over me and I say, hi, I'm Matt. I'm one of the supervisors here. How can I help you? That was the extent of my conversation pretty much with this gentleman because he was so in my face. I could see the veins bulging in his neck. I could feel the heat and the spit from his breath as he was talking down to me. And he just berated me for easily 20 minutes. And the real gist of what he was getting at is that we had inconvenienced him. Because we stopped the line for 15 minutes, he now 
was expired on his fast pass to another attraction. And so I tried to inform him at this time one of Disney's policies was that, yes, you have a ticket time printed on your fast pass, but if you don't make it in between that time, you can still go after it. You just can't come before the time is posted. And so I tried to tell him this to reason with him, but he wasn't having any of it. He grabbed my hat, yanked it off my head, threw it on the ground, and shoved me back into the wall. Now, Disney does a really good job at training their leads and their supervisors to avoid confrontation at all costs possible. So I just reached back and decked, no, I'm kidding, um, <laughs> right? Yeah, some of you guys are like, yeah, right, you deck somebody, <laughs> too much, couldn't hurt a fly. So anyway, I immediately, I step back like this, I throw my hands up in like a universal surrender, like, hey, like, let's just talk this out, let's just figure this out as a lead, and I reach back and I key on all my radio to alert, like, the U.S. Air Force to come and rescue me, right? But there was a button on my radio that alerted security that a lead is in danger, a lead is having a difficult situation, and it alerts like our theme park one, our managers, our security, our medics, it pretty much calls everybody. So I keyed it because I physically have now been assaulted, and this guy is threatening me to my face. He's threatening to literally kill me in front of the park. He's like, I could just kill you and throw you over, and nobody would know the difference that you're gone. You're right? It was just going out of hand. So I stepped back, and I was just had my hands up the whole time talking to this gentleman. Finally, security, my managers come, and they kind of corral him and surround him, and they say, I'm sorry, sir, but we're ejecting you from the park. Eject is a very strong word, right? When you think of eject, it's like an ejection seat. It really means they're going to kick him out of the park. And so they surround him and they kind of corral him and he is very hesitant, but eventually he goes. One of the things that really stuck to me is the one thing that he was demanding from me was that because we'd inconvenienced him for 15 minutes, what he really wanted was free admission back into the park for him, his family, and his friends who weren't even in the park that day for the rest of the week because 15 minutes inconvenienced him. And because I told him that wasn't the reality of the situation, that's what triggered him and set him off to violently attack me. So as the guy's going away, he's being surrounded by this. All of a sudden, I pick up my hat, brush it off, put it back on, and I'm looking up just to make sure that he leaves the attraction. He turns on a dime with his hands clutched, busts through security, doesn't make eye, break eye contact, and just walks towards me like this. And my first thought is, I'm dead. Like, this is it. He's going to come deck me. I'm going to go flying over the rail, get hit by a jungle cruise boat, and that's the end of my life, right? It's just, this is game over. There's nothing that can happen here. He just walks towards me with his fists clenched, not breaking eye contact. He reaches out, and he grabs the hand of a little four- or five-year-old girl and says, come on, honey, we're leaving. To me, that's what stood out in this story more than anything else. Because you see, this man had a little tiny daughter. And her first response when she saw daddy get angry was to wedge herself behind a solid object to get out of his way. It can't help, as I was walking, to think, what has this little girl seen and experienced the rest of this day? If that was just 15 minutes with me, what did the rest of her day look like? As I walked back into the station, I started filling out paperwork knowing that I would get questioned and interrogated by my management team about how I handled the situation and how I could have done things differently. I started second-guessing everything, everything that I had done, every choice that I had made. I even started second-guessing my career. Why am I here? <laughs> what is the point of all this? I mean, I've been to college. I've got degrees. I'm well-studied and learned in my fields of study, and yet here I am getting paid at to be assaulted, to be demeaned and belittled for hours on end? Is this really all my life is worth? Is this really all that's out there for me? By the way, I read a really interesting Facebook post the other day that said this. <laughs> this is great. I wonder how the interview process for a Disney cast member goes. I bet it's you walk into a room with no chair, no one there, and then someone comes bursting through the door, pushes you, yells at you, pokes you in the eye, and walks away. And those who are still standing and smiling are the ones they hire. 
It's pretty true. If you've ever been a cast member, I would agree with that. But the reason why cast members go through this is because they find themselves part of something bigger. Disney has this motto of one team, one dream, where we're all part of something greater than we can see. But at that moment, I could not see that. All I could see was the things that were inflicted upon me, and I guessed, why am I even here? What is the point of all this? And so that is the question that's posed today as we close out our series and rooted that I want to ask all of you is, why are you here? What is your purpose in life? Do you know why you're here? Do you know what your purpose is in life? Or is this it? Is this the best life that you're ever going to live? You see, there's something deep down inside of each and every one of us that makes us look back at our lives and wonder if we've ever made a difference. A difference in our lives, difference in our homes, with our families, with our kids, difference in our work, with our coworkers, our neighbors, our relatives, and the world around us. Something inside of us wants us to believe that we matter, that we have value, and that we have purpose. And we've always been looking for purpose. This isn't something new because a life without purpose is a very difficult life to live. It's a pointless life because there's no hope that exists inside of it. And so all throughout history, we've all been looking for a purpose. We've just phrased it different things along the way. I'm trying to find myself. I'm looking for my destiny. I'm searching for my calling. I want to know my purpose in life. You see, we're tired of just surviving in this life. Just going from point A to point B, going through the motions, getting assaulted and verbally abused and all of this stuff because it's what's expected of our lives. We're tired of just surviving through this life. We really want to do what it takes to thrive, to know that we matter, to know that we have value, to know that we have purpose, to know that there's something bigger in store for us than we ever possibly could have imagined. So as we close out our series in Rooted this morning, that's what we want to ask. What is your purpose? Do you know what your purpose is? What does scripture say about this? And coincidentally, this is also what we're going to be studying in weeks five and six of our life group series on Rooted Together. This idea of how can I make the most of my life and what does it look like? And today I, give you, I get to give you a little glimpse into this. And there's one verse in particular I want to focus on for the remainder of our time together. And this one verse is so key, and we're going to break it down and spend a lot of time in it. And the verse is this, Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork. What's so cool about this word is the word handiwork in the Greek is this word poema. And it means the works of God is the creator. It's also where we get our English word poem from. You see, you and I, we're part of God's story. We're part of God's poem. And a poem is a thing of beauty. A poem is a thing of grace. And that's what God wants for you as the author of your life he wants you to have a life of grace and a life of beauty. But we don't always start that way, do we? We start with these rough, these jagged, these rough edges. But over the course of time, through the experiences that we go through, the hardships in our life, God slowly chips away at those rough edges, exposing who we really are on the inside and starts to refine and mold and mend those. Yeah, when I worked at Disneyland, I may have been pushed, shoved, kicked, spit on, slapped, all of the above, but what it showed me and what it taught me is who I don't want to be when I get older. The kind of example I don't want to set in front of my wife and my child when he's born in January. I learned a lot through those experiences because they shaped me. They helped me understand who I really want to be. I think of river rocks, right? When a river rock starts, it starts off like something like this. Really rough looking, porous, got lots of sharp edges, not real pretty to look at, right? 
It's really difficult to look at this. But eventually over time, this rock will break off and it'll find its way into a stream. And when it goes into the stream and it starts moving its way through its life, it starts to have these collisions with other objects, these hardships that it comes up encounter with. And each time it has a collision, a piece of its outer shell breaks off, exposing its inner side. And once that inner side is exposed, as it continues to move down, being propelled by the current in the water, the sand and the pressure from the current eventually start brushing it and polishing it to where a rock like this ends up something when it finally comes to rest as something like this. Something that's unique, that there's no other rock out there like it. Different in shape, different in size, smooth as can be. So different from where it started to where it ended up. And this is what I see in our lives. Look, I don't know why hardships, sufferings, pressures from outside forces come into our lives. But what I do know is that God works through every single one of them. God works through every moment we're suffering, through every hardship, every spit on, every slap, every confrontation we have in life. God is doing something behind the scenes to take us from this into something like this. Because that's what he wants for our lives, knowing that we are his handiwork. And he says, I want you to know that I have something beautiful in store for you. Stop looking to find your beauty in things of the world. Because the world is going to tell you that all you're ever going to be is this ugly thing. This waste of space that's nothing more than just a paperweight in life. Because that's the value that the world will tell you. Not just that you're never going to be good enough, but you never will be good enough. There's nothing you could do to ever be good enough in this life. And that's why God gives us this reassurance as he continues in Ephesians 2.10 to say, you are not only God's handiwork, but you have been created in Christ Jesus. You've been created in Christ Jesus. In the image of God, you have been created so that you can become like God in a world that is without God. That you could become the hands and the feet of God to have an impact on the world around you and the people that are around you. One of my favorite pastors, Louis Giglio, he once said this, God gave you a fingerprint that no one else has so you can leave an imprint that no one else can. How powerful is that? You see, God has given you this fingerprint so you can leave a unique imprint on the lives around you. And as you've gone through life, you have been shaped and molded into something beautiful because that's what God has in store for your life. And when we choose to recognize that we are created in Christ Jesus, we're not filling ourselves with values from the world. We're rather filling ourselves with the things that God instills inside of us. You see, God has given us skills and gifts and talents to help us navigate these tough points in our life, these experiences that we go through, the river, if you will, of our lives. He says, I have given you the tools you need to make it through and come out better, to come out more beautiful on the other side. And that's what I want for you, that you've been created as a unique individual who has been shaped by the experiences and the stories of your life that have helped you determine the skills and the talents and the tools that God has given you to make an impact on the world around you. That's what God wants for you. That's what God is trying to show you. That's the beauty of his story. That's the beauty of your story. And why does he want to do all this? Well, that's how Ephesians 2.10 continues. It says, to do good works. God, I want you to do good works. But you see, there's a problem with this. What is good works? What is good? There's a fundamental problem with this because what I think is good may be completely different than what you think is good because it's all circumstantial and it's all relative. What is good? What is bad? What is right? What is wrong? Right? 
Nobody knows because it's different for every single person. And who gave them the power and the authority to hold that kind of control over your life? Saying that my version of good is better than your version of good. What I feel is right is more prevalent than what you feel is right. This is a fundamental problem in our society. And it leaves us walking around this earth thinking, why do we even bother? Because I'm going to offend someone anyway. I'm going to make someone upset. Sure, sir, let your five-year-old child ride because apparently I'm the only one that cares about their health and their safety. And if they die, it's on you. You see, it's easier for us to let things slide and to give in than to stand up against what we know is right. Because we are a people who hate confrontation. We don't like conflict and we'll do whatever it takes to avoid conflict, even if it means sacrificing deep down inside what we know to be true and what we know to be right. But every single time that we sacrifice that, a piece of us gets chipped off and it takes away from the value which God has instilled inside of our lives. But you know, there's an answer to this problem and it's called moral law. Some of you may not be familiar with moral law, but moral law is the thing inside of you that drives you to act and respond and make decisions based off of your scenario. In other words, it's your gut feeling, as we would call it. And it's something we're all born with. And I will show you exactly what I mean by this. Let's say that you're at Disneyland. Let's say that you're in line at Indiana Jones Adventure. You've been standing in line for an hour and a half. You're at the temple entrance. You're on the ramp. You're the next one to enter the attraction. There's one person in front of you. And all of a sudden, a lead comes running out, stops the line, pushes you all back, and makes you super crammed in and holds you here for 15 minutes without telling you what's going on. After 15 minutes is over, he finally releases you. The person in front of you goes into the attraction. All of a sudden, this woman comes up from behind you, busts out of the way, pushes you out of the way, and just steps right in front of you. Is that right or is that wrong? Wrong, right? If you think it's right, get out. No, it's wrong, right? It is definitely wrong. I see some of you like clutching your fists, right? And a little ticks going on because you've been in this scenario. You know that's wrong. But let's take it a step further. You start to hear the death threats arising from the crowd behind you against this woman. You feel the hatred and the heat of fire just burning into this woman's soul. And so you decide to be the spokesperson for the entire world. And you tap her on the shoulder to ask her, hey, what's going on? But before you can speak, she turns around and just karate chops you in the neck. Right or wrong? Wrong. Did I tell you how to answer that? No. Did anybody influence your decision one way or the other? No. Nobody did because there was something deep down inside of you that told you this is wrong. That morally I know this isn't right. And that's the solution to this problem. We have moral law. It's the thing inside of us that drives us to act, to respond and say, this I know without a doubt is not right. And once we find that moral law, we find that it starts to give us our values, the things that we hold as true and right and good. And once we have our values, they influence our passions because we become passionate about the things that matter the most to us. And once we know what that value is, that this is what's true in my life, you're going to act upon it and be passionate about it and do something as a result from it. That person, if you were that second person in line, your value was this is wrong. So my passion says I need to correct the situation, even though I know it may end in violence. And you tap her on the shoulder and she cry chops you in the neck. And then what do you do from there? You don't speak because you've been cry chopped in the neck. But right, where do you go from there? Do you just let her go in? No, you usually act upon it. Hopefully a lead at that point would step in and eject her from the park. But we look at it, this moral law is what guides us inside. And that moral law gives us our values and our passions, which cause us to act and respond in this world. Now, let me say this before we finish up with Ephesians 2.10. 
that some of us may think good works is what our salvation is all about. It's what our purpose in life is all about, to do good things to others. But if you think that that is the ticket, the takeaway from this message, you're in for a rude awakening because that's only part of the story. Good works are not dependent upon our salvation, all these other things. It should be a natural response of what we want to do because we know it's the right thing to do. But what we recognize today is that God loves us regardless of what we decide to do. God loves us whether we choose to do good or whether we choose to do bad. He still loves us. And when I was first told this, it blew my mind, and I was looking deeper into it, and I found that there's a place in Scripture that shows this so adamantly. Look at this. In Luke chapter 3, when Jesus is being baptized, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized. While he was praying, heaven opened, the Holy Spirit came upon him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came out of the heavens saying, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't done anything yet. His public ministry hadn't started yet, and God looked down upon him and said, you, I love you. I'm pleased by you. And that's the same thing that God is telling us. I love you. I don't care what you did yesterday. I don't care what you're going to do tomorrow. What I do care about is that you know I love you, and I'm pleased by you regardless of what you decide to do, because I know you're going to mess up. I know you're going to make mistakes. I know you're going to fail. I know you're going to have hardships. But the beauty is your story is still being written. So don't give up hope. Don't give up yet and just conform and just fall into society. No, stand for what you know to be right because I am with you and I love you. That's what it comes down to. That's why we should do good things. Because God loves us. And why does God love us? Well, it's how Ephesians 2.10 ends. Look at this. He says, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, God has already determined what you and what I are going to do for his glory in his name because he has a plan and he has a purpose for our life. God has been working and writing our story all along through every hardship, through every moment of suffering, for every tragic moment in our life, for the happy, the joyous moments, the moments when we felt strong and victorious, the moments when we feel that we're being broken and we're being chipped away at. God is working in the midst of every single one of them because he loves us and he has a plan and he has a purpose for us. Yeah, when I worked at Disneyland for those years, I was angry. I was frustrated. I was just bent up with rage and I felt the world was against me. But you know what I learned? I learned compassion. I learned understanding. I learned sympathy. I learned empathy. I learned patience. All things I'm going to need to exhibit when I become a dad in January. See, I never knew at that point in my life that God was letting me go through these terrible moments that would prepare me for the joy in which is to come. And our problem as humanity is we are here and now focused. We only focus on what's in front of us and we grab a hold of that rather than seeing the beauty that is in store for us. And that's why God is saying, hold on a little bit longer because there's something beautiful in store for you. There's something great in store for you. I have a plan and I have a purpose for you. Just watch and see what I'm gonna do through you. I think there's two important days in our lives. The day that we're born and the day that we realize why we were born. And I think that I finally have realized that I was born to help people, to help people navigate some of the tough spots of their life, 
to use the stories and the experiences that I've gone through, to use the skills, the talents, the giftings that God has given me, the things that make me passionate, the values I have inside to create relationships and network with people to help them see how amazing our God truly is, how wonderful our God is. And that's the same thing that I want to do for you is I want to help you discover what your purpose is. And so I took this verse and put it into the most simplest way that I could to help you find your purpose. Check this out. If you start at the very beginning where it says, for we are God's handiwork. If you look at the stories and you look at the experiences of your life and you add to them the skills and the giftings which God has given you being created in Christ soon, you're going to realize your true values and your passions, which are the good works that you'll want to do. And as a result of it, you'll want to go and have these relationships and network and share your experiences with people to make the world around you better, to leave your unique imprint on someone's life because that's what's been prepared in advance for you to do. And you know what's at the very center of all these things? Your purpose. That's what it comes down to. That's as easy as it is. When you look back upon your life and see where God is taking you from to where you are now, you can trace and you can see the story, the beauty of God working every single step of the way. And that's what should compel us to give sacrificially because without God, we'd be nothing. We'd have nothing. That's what compels us to want to go engage and share our stories with people because we're so passionate and excited about what God is doing and how he's moving in our lives it's what causes us to celebrate because we want, to people let, we want to let other people know that we have been set free. Free from fear, anxiety, bondage. Free from all of these things. We have been liberated and we want to use that freedom to share it with the world. But the problem is people don't want to be set free. People like being complacent and comfortable because they're okay with just surviving. The question is, do you truly want to be set free? Because if you do, you got to step up to the challenge. You got to step up to the plate, knowing full well that hardships are going to come, but finding hope and reinsurance in the fact that your story isn't done yet and that God is still doing a work in you. And so as we close this morning, that's the question I want to leave you with. Why are you here? What is your purpose? Are you here just checking off your Christian box saying, I'm being a good Christian coming to church today? I'm doing the good sociable thing. I've done my Christian duties. Or are you here because you know that there is truly something greater in store for you? See, God is calling us to stop living these mediocre lives where we just play the role of a Christian. And he's calling us to rise up and to do what we have been created to do. To be who we've been created to be. And to stop letting the world tell us otherwise. Don't let your purpose be overshadowed by pain and fear and anxiety and complacency, but rather rise up and do what deep down inside you know to be right, what God has instilled inside of you, and live a life of freedom. Live a life of purpose. Would you pray with me? Father, we, God, we humbly come before you right now. Father, every single one of us is a broken vessel. Every single one of us has hardships and struggles and difficulties, confusions, fear, anxiety. It's built up in our lives. Father, I pray that you would just help us break free from these. Father, that you would stop letting us focus on what the world 
is providing us and look to what you are giving to us. Father, let us see that the world has nothing for us, that it's just gonna beat us down again and again and again. But you are life. You are freedom. You are victory. God, you are everything that we need and more. God, I pray as we leave this place today, as we go out these doors, Father, that you would just raise up a passion in our souls. God, that you would rise us up to be the people, to be the Christians that you have called us to be, to live a life of purpose, to live this life that you have created for us, Father, knowing that you love us. Father, let us feel your love today. Father, let us feel you working in our lives. And maybe some of us here need comfort today, Father. Maybe we're in the middle of this stream and we're being chipped away at right now. But Father, I pray that you just reveal yourself in the most mighty way to let people know that you're here. Father, and that they wouldn't just let this go by, but they would rise up knowing full well that you've got their back and live a life of purpose to be rooted in you. Pray this in your name.